My my sermon this morning, or my teaching this morning, is entitled, Honest Doubt. The Apostle Thomas. More often than not, when we think of the Apostle Thomas, we don't call him that, do we? It seems like he got a different name assigned to him because of something that took place many years ago behind locked doors in Jerusalem. Think about this for a moment. How would you like to have your reputation, your very name, based on one moment of time, one event, one circumstance, one moment maybe of emotional weakness, a moment that was probably one of the most difficult or the most challenging times of your life, a moment when you were feeling so overwhelmed by what had taken place. This is where Thomas was at. Friday had passed. The man that they had put all their hopes in, their trust in, who they loved dearly, had been crucified, buried, and was dead. Saturday had passed. The Sabbath, which we know very little about. And Sunday morning had passed. And that's where we're going to be at today. Sunday afternoon. I want to take a moment for us to look at doubt and maybe even explain what I mean by the phrase honest doubt. How many of us, and probably most of us, if not all of us, have had those moments in our journey with Christ as we're walking with the Lord where doubt creeps in? And maybe at those times we've been bold enough to share with someone we were struggling. We had some questions. They might even sound like doubt. And the person we had the boldness to share with isn't exactly helpful. They throw something back at us like, all you got to do is believe. Where's your faith? Come on, you know better. You know what? We've all had doubt. We've all struggled with doubt at one time or another. Honest doubt. I want to share with you a quote from a German theologian named Paul Tillich. And I want you to just think about this quote for a moment. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. Now that may be contrary to our thinking. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. We are taught or we grow up so often hearing, you know what, doubt is the antithesis of faith. It's like we've got faith over here. Yeah, it's a good thing. We have doubt over here and it's a bad thing. And if we have any doubt, there must be something wrong with us. I don't believe that's true. Another quote that I don't know who first coined this quote was this. Honest doubt can be more powerful than dishonest faith. Honest doubt can be more powerful than dishonest faith. What is dishonest faith? It's a faith that we might talk about, but it's not lived out in our life. We don't walk it out. It's kind of like we put on the mask. It's kind of like when we get called phony. Honest doubt can be way more powerful than that. We need to remind ourselves that faith isn't just a belief. It doesn't mean we just believe something. Faith also includes trust. Trusting in God, our trust, 
our faith in Him. We believe in Him and we trust in Him and we respond to Him. As I said, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, and I'm including myself here, have times when we have doubted. There's times, and I I think you can relate to this, there are times when things that go through my mind are kind of like this. God, where are you in this? Lord, are you even hearing my prayers? Where are you? How can this happen? How can this take place? Why aren't you? Where are you? You know, we go on and on and on. And, and if we're not careful, the enemy then will turn that doubt, honest doubt, into something he will use against us, making us feel guilty and ashamed. You know, if we feel that way at times, I want to encourage you, we have some really good company with honest doubt. I could share in many, many places in Scripture, but I'm going to just share one this morning from the book of Psalms, chapter 13. This is David speaking. And as I read these verses, listen to this. Look at this in Psalms chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. It says this, Look how long, O Lord, how long, Will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with you? How long must there be this anguish in my soul with sorrow in my heart every single day? How long, O Lord? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? How long? Verse 3 goes on and says, Turn and answer me. O Lord my God, turn and answer me. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. This is David. A man after God's own heart. This is David speaking. Boy, it sounds like those questions could have a lot of doubt in them. And I believe honest doubt because of his circumstance, because of where he was at. He was struggling with believing all that he knew to be true. All that he knew to be true. When we look at this, I want us to think that honest doubt leads to questions that cause us to seek the truth. To seek the truth about the Lord. Causes us to dig in. Study the Word. Dig into prayer. That our faith becomes stronger and stronger because of that honest doubt and those questions that we might have. Honest doubt, truly honest doubt, teaches us how to trust God, to trust Him. The end of that section of Scripture in Psalms chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, in this way. David has gone through all of those things, all of those difficult questions. And then he says this, But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because He is good to me. Notice David's song of Psalms there in chapter 13 doesn't end with any answers to his questions. It doesn't end there. And it doesn't suppress any of his questions. It doesn't say, what's wrong with you? 
What are you thinking? It ends with David's decision to trust God. To trust Him. And not to trust Him in blind trust, but he's going to trust Him on the basis of God's character and the history that David has had with Jesus, with God. His history. The questioning didn't destroy his faith. And I believe questioning didn't destroy the faith of the Apostle Thomas either. And it shouldn't destroy our faith when we have honest doubt that leads to honest questions causing us to seek answers. With me talking about honest doubt, I want to now talk about dishonest doubt. What do I mean by that? Dishonest doubt. What does that mean? In my mind, what that means is there are those who would doubt. They would ask questions. And you've probably ran into more than one of these, and I hope none of us are this. But it doesn't matter what the answer to the question might be. It doesn't matter. We're not going to believe it anyway. I don't believe the Bible is true. You can give them evidence and more evidence and more evidence, but it doesn't matter. They don't want to know the truth. They just want to disagree. I don't believe God exists. We can give them evidence upon evidence upon evidence that He really does exist, but they don't want to believe. To me, that is dishonest doubt. When the questions are given just to argue, just to debate, because there is no way they're going to dig in and look for truth. They're just looking for something to support their position. I don't believe that's where Thomas was at all. We don't know much about most of the disciples. Did you ever think of that? Of the 12 disciples, there are many of them that we know almost nothing about. And Thomas would fall into that category. He is one of them we know very little about. Yet we hang on that one phrase, that one verse, when Jesus says, stop doubting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke only mention Thomas when they're listing the 12 disciples. That's the only thing we know about him. That's the only thing we learn about him, that he's one of the 12. In the Gospel of John, he is only mentioned three times. That's it. Three times. But I think each one of those times that he's mentioned in the Gospel of John gives us some better understanding and a revelation of who John is, what his faith was really like, what his character was really like. And that's what I want us to look at as we continue. John mentions him in chapters 11, 14, and 20. And we're going to look at the setting of each one of those that took place. The setting is the important thing because it adds so much context and clarity to what John says or what what John is trying to bring out about Thomas. So the first one is in John chapter 11, verse 16. John chapter 11, verse 16. What's the setting there in John chapter 11, verse 16? It has to do with Lazarus. And the reason I want to stress this, which each one of these three, the setting is what's so critical. Because we get the big picture of what's going on around us, and then we get to see a snapshot of how Thomas enters into this. In John chapter 11, it's about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. You probably are familiar with the story. If not, I encourage you to read John chapter 11. But basically, what happens is Jesus and his disciples are ministering. 
Jesus' ministry. And Jesus receives word that Lazarus is sick. And he receives the word, but doesn't seem to be acting upon it. And his disciples are kind of looking at him, and this conversation's going on. Jesus says something to them that's a little bit strange. He says to them that this sickness is not unto death, but is unto the glory of God, and that the Son of God may be glorified by it. In my mind, again, I'm making an assumption here, but in my mind, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm going, what the heck does that mean? This sickness isn't unto death. And then he waits two days. And then two days after he gets this information, he says to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And immediately the disciples respond. In John chapter 11, verse 8, remember the scene. It's been two days since they got the report. And Jesus doesn't do anything. He says this weird thing about sickness, not unto death, but for him to be glorified. And then all of a sudden he says, we're going to go now to Judea. And here's what the, the disciples said. They say, but rabbi, or but teacher. And then notice it says, they said. It's almost as, as a choir rises up amongst the disciples. And they say this, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going to go back there? And I might add, what are you thinking? You know, we could give them the benefit of doubt that they're just worried about Jesus' safety, but they may also be just a little bit concerned about their own safety. Jesus says, we're going back. And it's not because the disciples are just responding for some crazy reason. If you would look back in the Gospel of John just a little bit, in chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says these words, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. The religious people were crazy. And then it goes on and says, at this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Just a little bit later in John chapter 10, Jesus says a more crazy statement in the eyes of the Pharisees, a more heretical statement in the eyes of the religious leaders. He says this, I and the Father are one. And once again, we read the Jews picked up stones to stone him. So the fear of the disciples was legitimate. Previous times in Jerusalem didn't go so well. And they're saying, Jesus, you're going to go back there? And then we see Thomas. Thomas is brought into the picture. And he says this in John chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16, focusing on the last part of verse 16. He says, Lazarus is dead, Jesus said. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, Didymus simply means the twin, Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. All the other disciples are trying to talk Jesus out of going to, back to Judea. Out of fear. Fear for Jesus. Maybe fear for themselves. But Thomas steps up and he re- says these words, Let us go with Him. Let us go with Him that we may die with Him also. 
If that's what's going to happen, let it be. That's what he's saying. What a statement he is making of faith. A statement of loyalty. And a statement of love for Jesus. He is declaring. According to Jesus himself, he says, No greater love hath any man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. Thomas is saying, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Doubting Thomas? It doesn't sound like it to me. It sounds like to me we have a very brave, bold, faith-filled Thomas. The second place we see Thomas mentioned in the Gospel of John is John chapter 14, verse 5. And once again, I want to stress the setting, the environment, what is taking place so we can appreciate what Thomas does and what Thomas says. So in John chapter 14, this is taking place after what we call the Lord's Supper. That Passover meal has taken place. And if you read in the Gospel of John, you'll see that Jesus goes into a lot of teaching to his disciples between the time they finish the Passover meal and the time they go and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where it's at. This is what's taking place at this time. And in John chapter 14, starting in verse 1, Jesus shares this beautiful teaching. It's poetic almost. It's so filled with hope and promise. It's a section of Scripture I share many times when we have uh, funerals or the devotional time at, at the visitation. I want to read it to you. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be there where I am at. You know the place, I mean you know the way, and the place where I am going. Man, when you hear those words from Jesus, I'm sure the disciples are hearing this and they're going, this is amazing. Until he gets to that last part where he says, you know the way and you know the place that I'm going. In my imagination, once again, I can almost see the disciples looking at one another sideways and saying, you guys know what he's talking about? What do you mean we know the way? I believe when Thomas speaks up, he is speaking probably what's on the mind of every one of the disciples that heard Jesus say these words. Jesus, Thomas says this, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we possibly know the way? I believe when Thomas is saying this, it's not sarcastic, he's not interrupting, and he's not being rude. I believe Thomas is demonstrating once again his faithfulness to the Lord. Lord, you say we know where you're going. I don't know where you're going. But I do know this, Lord, wherever you're going, I want to be there with you. So how can we know the way? Please tell me. How do I get there? I believe we are seeing again into the character, the personality, and the love and faith of Thomas that he has for Jesus. Maybe not so much doubting Thomas, But Thomas, who is inquiring, he wants to know the Lord better. He wants to know more. He wants to understand. He wants to be part of what Jesus is doing wherever he's going and whatever's taking place. 
what follows from this question. The words that Jesus speaks in answering this question is one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture and truly a foundation stone in the faith of the Christian church. Look what Jesus says in response to this. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. How many times do we quote that verse? How many times do we share that Scripture? I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. It's foundational to the Christian faith. It's what separates us from so many other religions. There is only one way and it's Jesus. His own words. And where did those words come from? They came from an answer from an inquiring apostle, Thomas. I'm sure Jesus could have got this into His Word many different ways, but it's really intriguing and interesting to me that it's because Thomas asked the question. Thomas wanted to know one of the most powerful Scriptures in the Bible. Which brings us to the third place in the Gospel of John where John tells us a little bit more about Thomas. This is where he basically gets a new name. He's not just Thomas. He's not the Apostle Thomas. All of a sudden, he becomes what? Doubting Thomas. If I would have asked you at the very beginning, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the name Thomas is one of the disciples, you'd have probably said, Doubting Thomas. It's amazing. This is where it comes from. And it's interesting... I went online and I looked at all the different translations I could come up with of this section of Scripture. And it's just in one translation that I found in the NIV, the New International Version. And this isn't a criticism, it's just a fact. It's just in that one place, in verse 27, where Jesus responds and He uses the word doubting. One place, one word from one translation and Thomas is forever become known in so many circles as Doubting Thomas. So, so the setting, once again, is critical that we understand what's taking place and where we're at. The setting or the circumstance. What's taking place here, it's on Easter Sunday afternoon. Friday's passed, Saturday's passed. Sunday morning has came and went. Mary Magdalene and the other ladies had been to the tomb. Matter of fact, Mary has seen Jesus and spoke to Him. And he told her to go back and tell the rest. Peter and John had ran to the tomb and found it empty. And now it's Sunday afternoon, that same day. And where do we find the disciples? We find them in a house behind locked doors. And it says because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders. This is where the disciples are at. And not just the twelve necessarily, or the eleven, because... Judas is now gone. But obviously the women are there and we don't know how many other followers or disciples of Jesus are all in this one room in this house. And all of a sudden, behind locked doors on this Easter Sunday afternoon, Jesus is all of a sudden in their midst. And His words are, Peace be with you. 
Peace be with you. What an amazing event. But only one problem. Poor Thomas wasn't there. We have no idea where he was, but he wasn't behind a locked door with the rest of them. Thomas missed it. In John chapter 20, verse 24, I'm going to start reading there. It says, Now Thomas, called Didymus, meaning the twin, and he is not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, and these words that we all know, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now we might quickly say, Thomas, where's your faith? I mean, we're all telling you what we saw. You think we're all liars? I don't know. I don't know what was going through his mind. I do know that it's one long week between that visitation of Jesus and the next time. What must have been going through Thomas's mind for that whole week? All the other disciples in this room had seen Jesus, supposedly, and he's the only one. We call him Doubting Thomas because of what he says. I'm not sure what he was doubting. I don't believe he was doubting Jesus at all. He may have been doubting the words of these men and women. I don't know. But he demonstrates his faithfulness and his loyalty because he stays in that room with the rest of the disciples that whole week. Is he so much different than the other disciples? Is he so much different than you and me when he does this? Is his reaction really a surprise? I want to read John chapter 20, verses 18 through 20 to make a point. It says this, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had, he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Okay, so we got these disciples who when Mary Magdalene and the other women came running back from the tomb, Mary Magdalene coming after seeing Jesus and they report this to the disciples. Do you know what the disciples said? you know what they did? One of the, one of the Gospels says, it's nonsense, Mary. Another one says, they didn't believe a word she said. And let me paraphrase, Woman, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? They didn't believe. We don't call out in the doubting apostles. They didn't believe. They didn't believe the report that Mary had seen with her own eyes, Jesus. They're still behind locked doors, filled with fear. Jesus, when He came in the midst of them, when Thomas wasn't there, He showed them exactly what Thomas is saying, I need to see this. And it says, shows us after Jesus showed them His hands and His feet 
and he showed him the wound in his side. It then says, and they were overjoyed that they were seeing the Lord. In verse 26 of John chapter 20, it says, a week later his disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Picture the scene again. Thomas is there with him. He hadn't given up on Jesus. He had to be agonizing and wondering, why wasn't I here when Jesus showed up? But what I want to really point out to you is what Jesus did the moment he walked in that room or the moment he came in that room because the door was locked. Once again, he says, peace be with you. And then verse 27 says this, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. When Jesus came in that room, when He appeared in that room, the very first thing He did is He directed His full attention to Thomas. Thomas, the disciple who spoke up when the rest didn't want to go to Judea, when Lazarus had died, and said, let's go. We die with Him, we die with Him. The Thomas who after the Passover meal when Jesus told them that He was going away and they were going to come with Him eventually, and He says, I don't know where you're going. How do we get there? Because He wanted to be with His Lord. He says, Jesus says, Thomas, put your finger there. Look at this. Look what happened. He fulfilled what Thomas had asked and said, but it was the very same thing that Jesus had showed the other disciples that were gathered together. And he says those words, stop doubting and believe. And from that one little phrase, he became doubting Thomas. Look at Thomas's response the moment Jesus shows him. The moment Jesus comes in and shows him this, what does Thomas then say? My Lord and my God... You may miss the significance of this, but I want to let you know this. This is the first time in the Bible that Jesus is called my God. This is the first time He is called God. He has been called the Son of God. He's been called the Son of David. He's been called Rabbi. He's been called Teacher. He's been called a lot of things. But the very first person to ever identify Jesus as God was Thomas. The one we call Doubting Thomas. He gave the greatest witness of all. My Lord and my God. You know, we all struggle at times. We have questions. We have doubts. But it doesn't mean we still don't trust God. With those honest doubts and honest questions, it can simply mean we are seeking. We want to know Him better. Those kinds of questions will probably drive us into the Word of God. Cause us to seek Him in prayer like we may have never done before. And doing these things builds our faith, builds our confidence, builds our trust in the very character of God. 
we're oftentimes reminded of the way He has moved in our lives in the past. Honest doubt does not demonstrate a lack of faith. I believe what that German theologian said, and I would add maybe one word to his if I dared to do that. I would put the word honest. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is an element of our faith. It is an element of faith that causes our confidence and our faith and trust in God to be deeper, to be grounded more thoroughly, be stronger than it may have ever been in our lives. So when we have doubts, and we will have them, let us be like Thomas. Let our faith and dedication of it to Jesus and our desire to know Him better be what comes to the surface in our life. That we would allow those doubts, as legitimate as they may be, and as okay as they really are, to be things that drive us into a closer personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not sure doubting Thomas is a label that should have stuck. And for those of us who have been criticized at times for not having faith because we doubt, don't let that stick to you and be something the enemy would be using against you. We have a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. We can have a personal relationship with Him and we can know Him better and better and better as we spend time in His Word and in prayer and meditating on His Word. That's who we want to be. And our doubts and questions, when they're honest, will lead us in that direction. As we close in prayer, I want to invite the worship team to come back up. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You and praise You for the humanity we can see in the Apostle Thomas. Father, that he's not much different than us. Father, I praise You and thank You for the demonstration of his loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus even when he didn't understand. Father, I thank You for his inquiring mind that brought about a response like I am the way, the truth, and the light and no one comes to the Father except through me. Father, I thank you for his faithfulness. Even as he questioned the other disciples, he didn't run away. He knew you. He knew your character. He knew how much he loved you and trusted in you. And the questions only drew him into a deeper relationship with you. Let us be like that. May we all desire to know you better, to be with you, have a more intimate relationship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.